mm-hmm. um, imposter syndrome right off the bat. When you take a new client on, you're like, what do I do? What do I do? Right? Because um, some people will come with a lot of um, therapy work um, underneath their belt already in terms of they've had therapists prior to coming to me or, you know, a colleague of mine. And so people, sometimes people come in and it's really interesting. They think that they have an agenda and then they'll be like, what do you think I should work on? Like, this is your time. <laughs> I don't know what you should work on. You think that me. you would have the agenda as the therapist? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. What, what, what do you think I should work on? Right. So sometimes I'll, it, depending on what modality you're using, you know, things could be like, oh, hey, let's, um, let's set some goals. That's very uh, public insurance based. And, pu- and private, actually, where they're like, we have to set goals, and then you have to make smart goals, and then you have to meet those goals. Um, but then there's other modalities out there, like, uh, for instance, internal family systems or um, NARM, which is Neuroaffective Relational Model. Both models um, look at complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and it starts out with, what do you want for this session? Off the bat, that's your first session. Like, what would you like to achieve out of this session today? And so is the idea in that approach that each session is going to be unique, that you're going to be tackling a different problem each time? Or will mm-hmm. there be some carry through in that? There will be carry through. And a lot of the times um, they talk about what's going on today. So it's like, hey, Nick, what would you like for yourself out of therapy today? And the thought is that when whatever it is that you bring in, these patterns that we have now as adults, they've started when we were children or, or whenever trauma, whatever trauma had taken place. And then now we're just carrying those patterns through into adulthood. And so even if we started today and I said, oh, what do you want to work on? And you're like, hmm, I want to explore my anger. We're like, oh, okay. Right. We could start with today, the most recent thing that got you mad today, you know, or you can go back and be like, have you been processing your anger this way since you're a child or how far back do you remember this going? And so then you're exploring kind of that entire range now of childhood today you know, so it kind of goes a little, it kind of goes all over the place. A You're kind bit. of going where the patient needs to go in that mm-hmm. moment in some sense. Yep. Yeah. In that moment. And that's, I think that's the biggest part with CPTSD. We can be in the moment with them and like really have them feel into themselves, which is a lot of somatic experience. Um, I'm not trained in SE, but um, a lot of people are, and it's really big right now in um, uh, trauma-informed care about tapping into our bodies and like, where are we feeling our sadness? Where are we feeling our anger? Whatever it may be. Because then we can start chopping up. That's the easiest way to describe it. Start chopping up like what's happening within our bodies. That way, the next time it comes up, we're like, oh, there it is. You know, I mean, it sounds simple right now (laughs) as I'm describing it, but it actually does take place very quickly. If we don't let our emotions like completely take over, we start to learn skills to stop, chop it up, see what's going on, um, ask ourselves like, what's coming up? Where am I feeling the sensation? What's the disturbance? And then we kind of proceed from there with whatever skills it is we have, whatever, whatever soothing techniques we have, going for a walk, taking my dog out for a walk, just sitting in the sun, whatever it may be, you know, reading my book taking a deep breath, whatever helps, Mm -hmm. whatever helps. And that's really custom, you know, to, to each person. Like I've tried a lot of coping skills in the past and I'm like, well, that one doesn't work anymore. I need to find something new, you know, and then you go and you explore that and you have to do the work. That's the thing, right? Cause some people will come in and be like, Oh, I've been here for like 
eight months. And I'm like, well, I've offered you EMDR. I've offered, <laughs> you can offer so many modalities that you're trained in. And you find out that people are like, I kind of want to just come in here and have a cathartic experience. I'm like, well, that's the reason why maybe we're not doing making any progress yeah exactly because we're doing the same thing and then when you approach them and say well what is it that you want to work on again right and then you get the what do you think and i'm like i'm thinking what do you want to work on (laughs) right this is why i asked you a question so but it's fascinating because people get really scared about working through their trauma i've seen people hyperventilate when they reach a point where they're like oh there it is like there's recognition and they're hyperventilating. They're like, I think I'm going to vomit. I'm nauseous. Or they'll go home and they're like, I slept for 12 hours and took three days to recover. I'm like, okay, well, that, that's work being done. You know, so it's really fascinating to see people change and then have like physical change as they go through whatever trauma it is that they're working through. Is that emotional response just in reference to them reliving that trauma in some sense? Or is it a fear of going back to that place and just seeing it? I think it's a little bit of all of it and also a little bit of that. Um, like last week I had, was it last week? Yeah, I had somebody who just had to stop in 45 minutes into session because they were like, I was doing EMDR and they were like, this is getting too close to change. I see it on the other side. So it's essentially I was describing it as, is it like looking through a window and you see it right there? Like you're in the neighborhood now and it's like a little too scary. And it was like, yeah, like, okay, I'm okay with stopping here and just kind of debriefing, you know, de-escalating, and then just making the next appointment and going from there. So it's, it's interesting to, when you find your modalities as a therapist in terms of what you believe is going to, going to work and you really work it. And then it also can be like an eclectic mix of things. I, it, it's fascinating to see people have those big changes to be like, okay, I'm, I think it seems I'm doing effective work, you know, and, and then there are other clients who are like, I don't think I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, what are we doing here? Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes I'll go in there, I'm like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. And then sometimes I'm like, no, I think I have to go back to school. <laughs> Who gave me this degree? What happened here? You know, so. So it, it does really, um, it makes me check myself as a therapist. And in one of, uh, one of the modalities I'm training for, which is neuroaffective relational model, I think I mentioned it, NARM, it really forces you to check the like, 50-50, which is like what's going on with me and what's going on with my client, right? So being present, like being split. It's interesting where you're like, I'm present with myself, but I'm also being present in this environment with them. And so you're definitely scanning yourself and saying, okay, I think, I don't think I know what I'm doing now, right? What next? Um, but usually it, I find that it usually flows really well though. You know, once you, you, you build that rapport with people and you're, and, and being honest, I'm like, I don't know. I really don't know. And was that a hard part in it? Because they're coming to you for the answers in some sense, right? Or to work through the problem together, but they really want you to know and guide them. And so for you to say, I'm not really sure. We're (laughs) going to just see what happens here. That people are okay with the, um, that's exactly what I say. Let's see what happens. Let's, you know, and, um, let's see what happens in the next session. Let's see what happens throughout the week or the two weeks, depending on how often I'm seeing somebody. Um, you know, I'm like, go collect some data. We need some data. 
right? Because some people are like, I don't know if I know what it feels like to be, um, you know, uh, peaceful within my body. I'm like, oh, okay. Let's let's see if it comes up. And if it does come up, can you like come back with some info for me? Um, sometimes you'll try to tap into it um, within the session. And they're like, I can't. And I'm like, that's okay. Right. So that means right now we have an unknown. But I feel like sometimes we're, I, I usually tell people, I feel like we're in the neighborhood of something. Right. And so there's a lot of excavating to really get to the core of what's going on with people, you know, because a lot of times, um, Coping skills are great. I think they're fantastic for the time being, like when we're in the throes of whatever emotions we're having. But I think we also have to get to the core of what's going on, right? This is where that trauma-informed care comes in to really get to like the roots of like our cognitive patterns and our behavioral patterns of like what is happening or what happened to us, right? Because I have a lot of clients coming in, they'll be like, there are these four things wrong with me. I'm like, I don't think that's a problem, right? I'm depressed. I don't think that's a problem. What happened there, right? And so, I mean, there's a book that Oprah Winfrey and Bruce, um, his name, Bruce Perry, he's a psychiatrist. They wrote a book called What Happened to You? And it, it's great because it talks about, well, let's start looking to see, like, what happened to you? What happened to the generation before you? And if you're lucky enough to know two generations before that, and then, you know, even more so down the line of ancestry and to see, wow, is there a pattern going on here? And then, then you get into epigenetics of um, trauma that's passed down. So multi-generational trauma, trauma within the womb um, and what, how that impacts um, babies who are born. And so that's really interesting about how trauma just gets carried over from generation to generation. Is that, the root cause of a lot of what people are dealing with when they come to see you is just in one way or another, it's tied to some trauma that they experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And even when people have secured attachments um, in their childhood, in their homes, it's really interesting because then we talk about external trauma. Like, for example, I don't know, like random example, like, oh, I had a really secured household growing up. I went to um, gymnastics at age 14 and was, you know, sexually um, abused by the coach, right? And so now you've got an external trauma and then they're like, what do I do with this? Because the household is so secure and then there's a lot of shame going into this. And so a lot of times people are like, I don't get it. It's not developmental, like the trauma that I experienced. So what is it, right? And so then again, you're like, well, what happened? But usually it, it is, I mean, there's usually a lot of developmental trauma, things that happen in the home that then gets just gets repeated into the next generation. And I think that people who come to therapy, they're super brave because they're willing to say, I think, well, usually they say, I think there's something wrong. And I'm like, no, I think something happened. <laughs> right. But then they're, they're noticing that they want change, even though they may not know what the change is. And they say, well, you tell me at times. Right. Um, they're really brave because they're willing to notice there's an an issue they want to work on. And, and then when we get into it, I'm like, well, you're willing to break some sort of cycle that has happened here, right? You're, you're basically throwing a rock into this whole scenario and you're willing to jump off the hamster wheel. So one, give yourself credit for that, right? So just not repeat the cycle. I get a lot of older people that come in and they're like, but I've already repeated it for so long. And I'm like, I don't care if you're 93 coming in for therapy. You know, you're still looking for 
quality of life and calm and peace within yourself, you know, and then from there, a lot of times, right, there's that self, hopefully there's that self-compassion piece, which then, you know, we'll have more compassion with people outside of us. That's, I mean, that's my hope. Well, just because you're on that hamster wheel right now doesn't mean you have to continue to stay on it. Even if you are 90 or you're 50, just because maybe you've lived X amount of time on it, you can still get off and then enjoy the remaining time. It doesn't have to be this all or nothing thing where, well, I've already gone this way through life. So I might as well just suffer a little bit more because it's all I know. It's all I've done. And it's familiar. And oddly, that uncomfortability um, even though, well, it's it's familiar, which makes it comfortable, even though the situation is uncomfortable. It sounds really weird. And sometimes I'll have to say it like 10 times in session. I'm like, does that make sense? Like, this is familiar to you. And this is why it's comfortable. But it's actually really uncomfortable, right? I think I hear a lot of times, or even when we watch movies, and we're like, oh, no, why did that woman go back with that guy in domestic violence situation, right? And it's a lot of times it's because they're familiar with that type of abuse or whatever it may be. And so they're like, well, like you said, I've gotten this far already, just a little more, you know, um, it's fine. And, and, and I'm sure that's not the process that goes down in the head, but like at the time, but when you sit down with somebody and they're like, yeah, that is kind of a thought process somewhat that I got this. I've already been through it for 15 years. It's, it's okay. almost the devil, you know, mentality mm-hmm. of, well, yeah, I'm suffering, but what if I work through this problem and then I end up worse in some way? So I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing because I know it. I'm comfortable in it. I know how it plays out. I'll just stay in this path. Right. Because the unknown is a little too scary, right? Which then causes a lot of anxiety. Even though there's the potential it could be better, mm-hmm. people still like to stay in the comfortable, uncomfortable misery. Correct. Yeah. And then so then you go from there and you're like, oh, OK, hold on. There's a little bit of a pattern here. What's going on? Right. With the cognition, with the actual like behavioral part. And then, of course, the well, what's happening here part. Right. Because then all of a sudden people who are in domestic violence situations, I find that I've worked with, you know, will then have children and then there's shame. Right. And then now you've got more layers on top of that. And you're like, wow, this is a lot to um, work through. And it's okay. A lot is, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's not uncommon. That's the saddest part. You know, when I see a lot of people, I'm like, wow, this is so actually common that we have suffered so much. And I don't care, you know, how old you are, what color you are, what, you know, what sexual orientation, what gender, there's just so much trauma in this world. And it's really hard to it's it's not hard for me to sit through it, but sometimes when you can't kind of take a step back, you're like, whoa, it's everywhere. This is really s- sad. Not, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't say scary is the word because I'm still out in the world doing this, right? But it's really sad. And then I've traveled to a lot of countries and I see it there, but I also see it in a different way that I'm like, wait, people are still striving for happiness at the same time. Hold, hold on, <laughs> right? How do we do this? Where's this balance? And and so that's sometimes that's kind of a breath of fresh air. That's why I like to leave the country a little bit and come back and be like, oh, OK, hold on. I could do this again. The right? world's not falling apart. Right. We're going to be OK. Right. Everything's going to pan out. It's just there's some dark there's some darkness mm-hmm. in, intertwined in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I will. I will give credit to I think it's the World Health Organization. I forget what year was this? 2018, was it that they officially, you know, made complex post-traumatic stress disorder a diagnosis? 
um, in my realm of um, using the DSM-5 um, through the American Psychology Association, it's not a diagnosis yet, um, which is unfortunate. I wish I wish it is a diagnosis because a lot of times, um, you know, I have to diagnose people with PTSD and I'm like, it's not fitting, you know, it's it's not. I also don't even like to diagnose people with depression and anxiety because I'm like, no, this is all because of post-traumatic or a CPTSD or PTSD, right? Because they're you're like, hold on, there's depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms that comes with PTSD because that's your life being threatened at that point when you think PTSD, right? Complex, it's your life wasn't being threatened, but there's a lot of other things going on. Um, so people can be diagnosed with both CPTSD and PTSD. And, and those are, you know, and those are all still relatively new diagnosis or diagnoses at this point. Do you think that that's underlying a lot of those prescriptions, especially in terms of depression, is that there might be some trauma? It's not just this depressive state that they find themselves in? Yeah. Usually it's like when you do some digging, um, you know, it's like it's I, I always see this as like excavating. Um, I'm like, oh, we're just we're in the neighborhood. And then you go further and you're like, oh, this is not just I've got depression. And I can't get out of bed. Um, you know, you talk more and more and you find out trauma is really at the bottom of this, you know, and then what kind of trauma, right? Developmental, um, religious trauma is a really big one, like cult trauma, people who have left cults, um, cultural trauma, racial trauma, you know, uh, uh, sexual orientation, gender. For those, is it attached to that suppressive nature of it, that that's where the trauma comes from, that you're who you are is being suppressed in some regards or your a belief system being imposed on you? Not necessarily. It, a little bit of that, but sometimes it, it's also like just the things people have experienced. You know, so the, so the harm that might have been. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. As a yeah. result of being a part of that. Right. In some way. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. It's pretty complex, but it, but it also isn't. I mean, it's, it's really weird the way that I, see it in my head i'm like okay this is like there's a lot but then i'm like hold on but some of these techniques and modalities we use can be really helpful and if it's just the same two that we use like emdr for example right um that's really good for uh, i have two different <laughs> trainers that will say two different things so i had when i did emdr i had an emdr trainer but then i'm currently in neuroaffective relational model um uh norm and the NARM therapist is like, well, the trainer's like, well, that's really more PTSD. And then my EMDR therapist is like, anything disturbing. And I kind of see it kind of in, in between. I'm like, I could think, I think I could use EMDR for a little bit of both, just depending on the person. You know, um, it is a little more difficult if it's not single case incident PTSD. For example, my dog died kind of thing, you know. Um, or grief and loss is great for EMDR, but when you talk about more bigger repeated traumas, it is really hard to use EMDR. It's not impossible. I just find it kind of difficult because there's so many layers that and so many channels. And so, you know, some people might be able to maybe summarize the entire, all those little channels and say, you know what, it's this person's face and, and the abuse that I suffered at this person's hands. And you're like, oh, hold on. I think I usually call it the boss. I'm like, you got to the boss, you know, then we'll go and go and get the boss. And you're like, whoa, like eight sessions later, you're like, we're getting closer. And you see a change in them too, where they're like, wow, I'm exhausted or 
I'm nauseous or, right, I had to rest getting into my car after this. And I'm like, oh, you could have rested in my office. <laughs> like, I, didn't, I didn't realize it was, you know, a, this, you know, EMDR or whatever it was, you know, had, you had this reaction from it afterwards. So for people that are experiencing depression as a result of some trauma that they may or may not recognize, is the only way to really work through that to address or discover the trauma? I mean, are antidepressants effective in that case? Or does the extent vary? Yeah, the extent varies. I've seen, honestly, I've seen very little progress with SSRIs, with antidepressants, um, at least in my time. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a medical doctor or a PA or NP, but I've been in this field for a really long time in this community. I've worked with um, youth. I've worked with veterans. I've worked with um, aging population. And now I'm moving back into more of like younger adults and first generation um, children of immigrants. And I've seen people take antidepressants after antidepressants. And I'm like, they're like, this isn't working or I've gained too much weight. And, and, and some people will be like, I've been on this for three years. I'm like, have you noticed a change? And like, no, I'm like, you might want to go talk to your doctor because it doesn't sound like it's working. Then if we're on year three and we're still talking through this, right? Because I feel like SSRIs, it just kind of covers up those symptoms. If it works, it doesn't really get to the core of what the issues are. At and that that's point. if it works. And that's yeah. not to talk about the side effects that you might get right. from it working. Yeah. I mean, off the top of my head, if I had to guess, Based on just the people that I have seen and that I've known to take SSRIs, I don't even feel like it's more than 50% that SSRIs have been effective, you know? And, and this is me just kind of really quickly cataloging through my head from the time I moved here 17 years ago to, to, to now, you know, that I'm like, I, yeah, I couldn't even tell you it was 50%. I couldn't tell you what the exact number is, but definitely not 50%. I feel like a lot of the times in therapy, we'll talk a lot about, you know, we do a lot of uh, discussion of meds as well. Um, and a lot of times it's always a recommend you talk to your psychiatrist, right? But they'll tell me about how it may not be working or they'll tell me how, hey, I've been on this for like six years and it just hasn't worked or whatever it may be. And I'm like, okay, I'm suspecting that it's also not working, but I also can't tell you to stop taking it. You're going to have to go talk to a doctor. Um, some people will just off the bat stop and tell me and I'm like, there's nothing I do. I don't force people to take meds, but I'm like, you should really talk to your psychiatrist, you know, which is also an issue up here because we don't have that many psychiatrists. Yeah, the 60 year thing freaks me out because I know a lot of people that are just, it's just something that they assume they have to be on forever. Mm -hmm. But, oh, yeah, I'm on these antidepressants and now this is just my life. Right. Like, we're, we try to dial it in. Sometimes you start out with one and then you have to go through a couple to find a good mix and then. That's it. This is just now a pill that you take indefinitely. Right. Which is kind of scary because are we just masking the problem? Like we're just going to put a bandaid over it and then now it's okay. Now you just you tip, pop your pill and then go about your day. And you yeah. just repeat that cycle every day. Right. And, and for those that, you know, where SSRIs do work, it's great. You know, that's wonderful. I'm like, good, something worked. Um, but people will still come in for therapy. And then it's kind of nice because you're like, oh, okay, so this is how I'm this is how I want to feel. And you're like, oh, okay, well, let's see if we can get there on a therapeutic level. And then you can talk to your psychiatrist about maybe like tapering off. And that would be really nice, right? As you know what you want to feel like, 
with the help of this SSRI that does work. And then we work through whatever issues and trauma it may be to then hopefully taper people down. And then you can hopefully your body will organically kind of understand what's going on um, once trauma is processed. And then the hope is that you go about your life processing emotions as they come up and giving it the space and time, right? Learning these skills, learning that I can feel this way and I'm just having emotions and that's okay. I'm just in my feels, but I can regulate it as I like to call it, you know, like, and I was just mentioning that to a friend um, who was in town and we were talking about uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. And um, I'm actually going into a training for it um, in September um, down in San Francisco, but it'll be online. But uh, he's been doing psychedelic assisted therapy um, out of state. And it was interesting because he was like trying to explain it. I was like, what you're trying to say is you're you could be in your feels and then but you regulate it. <laughs> and he's like, yes, <laughs> that that's exactly how I feel. And 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 I told him, I was like, well, I'm able to say that because I, too, have been on, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy. I, I was for a while and then now I'm not. But um, just through a local coach here. And, you know, and definitely they were microdoses and it was great. You know, I didn't like accidentally macrodose at any point in time because then it's no longer, you know, the therapeutic effects you're looking for at that point. Yeah, the the depression thing is interesting because how much of that is a general state of just chaos versus circumstantial of, oh, your life kind of sucks right now, understandably, or you're going through some hardship. And so you are feeling depressed, but you don't necessarily have that constant state of depression. And I worry that, you know, people feel sad. And then because of society or because of however we're programmed or whatever, the instinct is I need to take something to fix this. And that's my only solution. Not, oh, maybe I should exercise a little bit. Maybe I can talk to somebody mm -hmm. and try to figure out why I'm feeling this way so that I can work through that. It's nope. Take your pill and you can keep going about your day. You're going to feel better. You just have to do this thing first. Right. Yeah. It, it's interesting because like um, you're right, the circumstantial situational or in the world of if I had to give it a um, diagnosis, right, it would be adjustment disorder. And so you're trying to adjust to something. Housing, for example, is a really big one. COVID. Yeah. I mean, just the yeah. state of COVID, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many people were depressed, not because of anything, not because of any trauma per se, but because of the state of COVID mm -hmm. and how hectic that was. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of people trying to reintegrate, all of us actually, you know, try to reintegrate into society. Um, maybe I'm not having it because I was already in the throes of society when COVID was happening. I was at the time investigating um, elder abuse. So I was, I was in people's homes wearing respirator, you know. Um, and so I, I think I maybe didn't have that transitional, like that transition back into society. I was like, oh, I've always been out here doing my thing right but i and then when people come in i'm like oh hold on because i didn't experience that part right i'm like hold on this is a theme here and and it's true you know the circumstances or the situational depression like people do find that they're like i don't know what to do right how do i process these emotions that are coming up depressive symptoms because i'm learning how i don't have friends anymore all the friends that i had um are also hiding out, right? Because they ha aren't quite ready to come back out yet or whatever it may be, at, at least when we're opening back up, you know. But it's it's fascinating to watch people also, especially like with housing or with COVID, 
if it's situational, when they find that housing, they're like, oh, I'm good. I think I'm, I'm, act, I'm great. You know, and so you're like, no, you've always had those skills. You just had some hardship, right? That came that it's, a, it's circumstantial. It's situational. With COVID, I feel like there's a lot of us kind of on the other side now that we're like, OK, we're thriving and we know how to socialize again. Right. I mean, today is our first Friday night market in Eureka. Right. So clearly we're, you know, going back out. I, I mean, I was wearing my mask for a really long time up until I think I, I still do from time to time. Um, I ran out of masks yesterday and I was like, what do I do? What, like, you know, I was like a little frantic and I was like, I got to drive home and get some of these. Right. And so um, but most of the time I'm like, oh, I like walk into Costco. I'm like, there's literally three people wearing a mask. And then I'm like, should I mask for them? Right. Because it's all about, you know, it's because I do think about the community a lot. I'm like, OK, where have I been recently? I really haven't been anywhere but work. So I think I'm OK. With a client that comes in and it's a situational depression or a situational form of depression, is part of your approach to try to, I mean, can you recognize that when you're talking to them that it might just be situational? Or are you trying to walk them to some sort of realization in that way? Or you just kind of handhold them and then hope that maybe they come across that epiphany on their own? So it kind of depends because some people will come in and just be like, I don't have housing. And you're like, oh, okay. Right. Um, and sometimes there are some layers underneath that or they're like, um, I don't know how to socialize anymore because of covid. And you're like, oh, OK. And then you kind of dig back a little bit with them, too, to then find out there's always been underlying social anxiety or there's always always been some kind of underlying something. Right. That all of a sudden, how come we couldn't like launch ourselves back out of this kind of whatever, maybe however it is we're processing. Right. And so. There are times that people come in for one thing that's situational. Um, for example, grief and loss. Again, my dog died, right? And all of a sudden I find out that I'm a terrible processor of grief and loss because I hadn't processed like the death of my grandma from 12 years ago. And I'm like, okay, there's something bigger here that I'm not, I, I didn't, I just couldn't put my hands on at the time, you know? And so I do have people who come in and then you're like, oh, actually there's a couple layers of, um, going a couple layers down there's developmental trauma there's whatever trauma it may be so i get a mix of of both that people come in for more of the short-term therapy and then they're there for a little longer um even after the situation has you know resolved then they'll continue to come in to be like okay i think i'm i think i need some insight on some other stuff right um usually i try my best not to give advice because that's the whole idea i'm not here to give it give, give advice but definitely ways of looking at things, right? Like different um, ways of seeing our situation. Because uh, sometimes people just think it's black or white. I'm like, hold on, there's this whole middle area of gray that we haven't even looked at, right? All these other options that are sitting right there, but we're not seeing because we are having a really hard time. Our emotions are maybe clouding, you know, the, the ability to make decisions, to see other options, whatever it may be. And so people will then be like, oh, hold on, can I come in a little bit, like a little for just several more sessions now that even though I've resolved this other issue, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So I get a mix of, you know, the situational and then underlying other trauma. And in your approach to handling those, do you try to take a more passive role? Do you, do you kind of poke and prod and maybe press? when it's needed or what is what is your personal approach in that it kind of depends on the person and if they can kind of handle that mm -hmm. okay yeah um but i do 
maybe because I'm also in all these different trainings now that I'm I'll use kind of an eclectic approach. You know, if I if I if we're talking and let's just say we're doing a very basic like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, you know, changing the way you think to change the way you feel. I'm not there to change anyone's way of thinking. You can think the way you want to think, but I'll once again, I'll offer other options and alternatives. And with those options and alternatives, you then might find out like people start disclosing other information and they're like, oh, hold on, I forgot about this. And you're like, oh, hold on, that's a round of EMDR. So we basically, the next session, we're like, pause EMDR, right? Um, or, you know, most recently, I'm thinking of one where we're about to do EMDR. And then we paused and went into more of neuroaffective relational model where I'm just like, oh, what are you wanting for yourself? And when we got to the core of it, I was like, wow, that is a totally different thing than last week, like completely different. You know, it could go from literally like talking about, you know, uh, whatever type of trauma it may be like, oh, a racial trauma. And then you're like, oh, actually, we're over here talking about, you know, um, sexual trauma that happened or like developmental trauma and you're like oh okay so now we're just going to fork over here and so I always see therapy as like just a little roadmap where I'm just like you know if this go this way if that go this way especially depending on the client you know if we can customize it to to the person that's sitting in front of me and and the hope is that I know them really well now at this point you know that and then sometimes people will put up really good boundaries and be like I don't think I can go there like that's fine we don't have to then we'll, you know, look at something else. We'll take this other road, you know, other things you've presented. And so I think memory and, and um, bookmarking people's um, past or things that they tell you is really important, too, because I'll just be like, oh, we can go this other way. You know, five sessions ago, you told me this. Or like, how do you remember that? Like, <laughs> I wrote it down somewhere. <laughs> and when I wrote it down, I remembered, you know, or I'll be like, in that first session, you had mentioned you also wanted to work on this. And so we'll go that way if something becomes too intense, you know, and, or try to work through that intensity a little bit. But some people will just be like, I can't. I don't, not, not that, not necessarily can't, I can't right now. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I could respect that. Do they normally circle around eventually? They do. There's just an initial hesitation of I'm not quite ready to dive yeah. into where this is going to go. Right. Yeah. I, I've, I, at least with my clients, I've seen a theme where, when there's recognition, it's almost like the the emoji that has like the blow up the fire out of the head kind of thing. And they're like, whoa, OK, hold on. I need to stop right there. Right. Because the recognition is already so much because I always ask clients and I ask, you know, my friends and family this, too. I'm like, OK, we might know something, but do we know it like in our hearts? Right. Like. I'll share some personal information like I have a little bit of a of an anger issue. Right. <laughs> and so. And I know this, you know, um, but then do I know it? But I've recently been knowing it because I've been using these modalities that I've been learning about on myself, you know. And so now I'm really feeling through my anger when it happens, the whys, you know, what took place for me to feel this way um, before secondary emotions come in. If I can stop it, I don't have to like anger can lead to irritability and rage, right? These other secondary emotions. So I'm like, hold on, if I can check my anger. I don't even have to go there, which has been kind of nice. I don't have to go there. I can actually be in my anger and still be really kind and express as to why I'm angry. You know, and that part I'm still working on is that expression of like, I'm upset and this is why, you know, but feeling it. Oh, I absolutely can. And I'm like, oh, there it is. Now I have to figure out how to like get it out in a kind way. 
you know, I don't have to be, you know, I don't really have to be nasty about it when I'm angry. It's like there is a way you can have these what's called negative emotions and still express it in a very graceful manner. Well, that's a healthy perspective to have. I think it's incredibly challenging for people to try to get into that mindset, particularly because it takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And that's something that people have a little hesitation towards sometimes. Yeah. Oh, it's taken just in that example I gave you, it's taken me a year and a half. I started that anger journey in December of 2022. And so here I am being able to just feel into it and still trying to figure out how to express it in a kind way. You know, and I feel like it's th that won't even be the end at that point. It's like, okay, the next thing after that, right? And then also then you have to maintain it. So you're like, okay, how do I maintain it? And then, and then not so much the fear, but then the expectation that maybe some of these tactics I have or skills that I have might wear out and they may no longer be helpful. And then I have to find a new way of how to express my anger in a, a kind way again, you know? And so it's, it's, it's tricky. And once again, it's work and we have to put in the work to, to then really get somewhere. And like I said, people coming in already is already doing work and is already saying, I need to jump off this wheel, but they're on the wheel still for a little bit, even though you try to get them off and you're like, come on, let's right. Let's get off the wheel. And they will in session. And then you kind of catch them. And you're like, did you just hear what you said? You know? And so there is this part where you also have to be really, I mean, you know, you have to be really present because people will start talking really fast and then you'll be like, hold on, you just said something. Keywords are really huge for me. I'm like, I don't know if you heard yourself just say this part. And they're like, no, we're like, oh, let's back up. You know, so it's really interesting when people are just, you know, saying things. And then as they're saying it, too, it's like this is where that somatic experience stuff that I'm doing is coming into play. Which is like, wait, how are you feeling when you're saying that, right? Because when we describe a certain situation, let's just say it's a scary situation, we kind of get scared. Or if it's a situation where it made us upset, we kind of get upset, you know? Or we're describing a, a time when we went on a vacation, you're like, oh, that was so nice and I was so happy. And then you become happy as you're describing it, right? So you're kind of in the, those feels at the time. And so you're able to catch them and say, well, what are you feeling right now as you're telling me this story? And they're like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's the anger. Oh, okay. I'm getting kind of stressed out telling you this. And people will say that because at the end of sessions, they'll be like, we'll be like, okay, what do we need to do to bring you back down? How do we get you back into this room? If it's telehealth, how do we get back, you, back to the room you're in right now? And so there's a lot of this like um, debrief, you know, decompress. Um, I get people to just like put their feet back on the ground. You know, to just be like, oh, yeah, I'm here. So there's quick little, you know, tactics you could bring in that takes like 30 seconds, if that, 10 seconds to be like, oh, I'm back here, you know. And so it'd be like, look for three orange things in this room, right? It'd be like that cord and that skateboard or that journal right there or whatever, you know. And so it, so it helps a lot of times to just really quickly bring them back down and then they can go. And you're thought process in that is to time is to kind of just pull them back in and mm -hmm. reground them after whatever you had just been talking about right right because it's 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 funny because sometimes when i do emdr um within an hour or at least like within 50 minutes i will feel like i like went on a five mile run like you'll see me go 
It's that draining well, even for you as the one applying it. Sometimes, sometimes, right? Because I'm sitting there waving this wand and it's all witchcrafty looking, right? Because I'm like, okay, follow this wand. But as you're doing it and the person is, um, and these emotions and these thoughts are coming up very quickly, anger, sadness. And then the idea is you go from childhood perspective to adult perspective. And when they're in that adult perspective, you're like, whoa, all these thoughts we just went through, right? Most people tell me when we do EMDR, it took me five years to go through each of these emotions that just flashed before me within the last 25 minutes. And I'm like, yeah. And then by the time I'm done, I'm like, oh, you know, like I'll sit back. And then we, we end up doing like a debrief or whatever it may be. And I'm like, we just did some serious like acrobats. And people are like, yeah, I feel it, you know. And so it's really fascinating how um, certain modalities, especially EMDR, and you know, in this instance that we're talking about, can be very exhausting for me as a therapist because I'm just like, well, we did work. You know what I mean? I'm like, that was like personal training, but for your, but for like your behavioral health, yeah, that was awesome. And so you, you know, they feel great, you feel great, and you just like high five your way out of there because you're just like, yeah, you did good work, you know. And they were like, you guided me in a really good direction. And so you're like, yes, once again, we're doing, you know, work for the community and people's lives. And and it's and, and that one was positive. Sometimes I come out of sessions where I'm like, hmm, nothing happened, which I'm OK with now, too, because I think when you're striving for something to happen, then imposter syndrome comes to play because you're like, I have done nothing. That means I know nothing. Right. And you're like, no, it's because someone chose to have a really cathartic experience i have clients that will come in and just be like can we can i just have a dumping session today I'm like okay if that's what you're requesting yes you know but then you'll still try to like weave certain things in um just depending on what it is you know that they're bringing in but a lot of times when they're trying to dump they're the same exact patterns and behaviors that we're experiencing from trauma so it's a trauma response you know from whatever may have taken place when we we're however old, you know, into today's situation that they want to be like, I want to, I want this to be a dumping ground. And you're like, okay. And you're like, oh, hold on. Was this not the same thing? Is this not similar to like what you told me like three months ago about the other situation? Yeah. I'm starting to sense a thread here. <laughs> Can you explain for people that don't know what EMDR is mm -hmm. and your process in approaching it? Yeah. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And so it was a um, it was a modality that was accidentally founded by a woman named Francine Shapiro. She's no longer alive now, but it started um, in the early 80s, from what I remember. And what it is, is that it so you you go through an entire like assessment. So you do a history taking, you do um, you do. Uh, you kind of teach people about the process of EMDR and what that looks like. And then um, you do an assessment, you do the desensitization, you, and you go through the entire process at the end, and then you do a reevaluation re the next, um, at the next session. And so what it is, is like the idea, the easiest way to summarize it, which one of my really brilliant supervisors at Adult Protective Services, like she was the one that, that came up with this, is you take away the energy, um, but you keep the memory. So what it is, it's for memories and incidents that were really disturbing. Um, and so if we're still heightened by, you know, the memory or the incident in terms of like we give it a lot of energy. And when I say energy, it's like 
you know, depressive symptoms, anxiety, if there's a lot of stress surrounding it, um, then we try to take that down. Um, can't erase the memory, but the response can be very different. And so the idea is that you have this wand and you go through this assessment. So when you go through the assessment, you ask um, about the incident or the memory. What's the incident or the memory you want to work on? I'll give you an example. I think I've been bringing this death of a dog in quite a few times because it's easier, right? It's, 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 it actually is not easier, but it's, um, but let's just say I'm like, okay, my memory and incident is death of a death of my dog. And I'm like, okay. And then you say, what's the worst picture of that memory? So what you're doing is you're saying, okay, here I am trying to explain this entire video of my dog dying. Um, and you say, okay, I just want to snip it. What's the worst part of that entire memory? Um, the last look my dog gave me before he, um, before he died. Okay. And then you go from there and you're, you ask several more questions of like, where do you feel it in your body? How disturbing is it on a scale of zero to 10? What are the emotions that are coming up? Um, and then the biggest parts are you then give a negative cognition of what you believe about yourself because of the incident. For example, I'm a terrible dog owner. Um, it was my fault that my dog died. And then you want to come up with a positive cognition um, of what it is you prefer to believe about yourself now based on the incident. Well, I want to believe that it wasn't my fault and that I can have animals, but you'd very simply cut it as it's my fault to it's not my fault, right? And then you go from there. And so then that's when you start the bilateral. And then hopefully people will go from that perspective of, you know, it depends on what comes up. The reason why I use the dog example is because that was what I used when I went into my training for the practicum. And, and I processed my, the loss of my dog. And I really thought it was my fault. But my dog had a tumor. Right. So then I was like, oh, I'm a terrible dog owner. And then I'm like, but I'm really not. I cook food for my dogs, you know, <laughs> like, please. Right. And so it, it went from I'm a terrible dog owner and it's my fault. My dog died to finally truly understanding I'm not a terrible dog owner whatsoever. And so now if you asked me if I pulled up that incident again, that last look my dog gave me before he died, um, I can see it right now as I'm thinking about it. And it doesn't really have an emotional effect on me at this point. Before I did it, it did. Like I was crying all the time. I'm like, I'm a terrible dog owner. Right? How could I let this happen? And, and now I'm like, no. And, and when, when it ended, the disturbance level for me was at a one, which was like kind of an, what's called an ecological one, which is this is always going to be disturbing. Um, but over time, I've noticed it's not disturbing to me anymore. You know, I've like seen it in other lights now as in that adult perspective. And we always fall into both, you know, just because it's childhood perspective is not like I'm insulting somebody and saying, oh, you're thinking like a child. Well, it's true. I was kind of thinking in this childhood perspective, very simple, like black and white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then now I'm seeing it. I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, so now there's no energy put into that when that memory comes up. And so that's the whole thought, the thought process of, or that's, you know, kind of like in a nutshell, what EMDR is about. Once again, you remove the energy, but you keep the memory. And so is the thought there that in waving your wand, well, in guiding them into the memory initially, you're kind of re-invoking their emotional response to it. And then in waving the wand, you're trying to split their attention and that somehow separates or neutralizes that emotion for them? It stimulates both sides of the brain. 
is is the is the thought process. And then so from there, it it's supposed to like have a calming effect on you. And then somehow, because with these, however the brain waves are the brain, however the stimulation is happening in the brain, and now you have to like call in a neurobiologist with their evidence based research, right? There's some something going on there in terms of electrical, like I'm, I think it was like the whatever waves are happening. There seems to be like more understanding, right? To was it today or was it the other day? I'm I'm always looking up like different um, bilateral stimulations because sometimes people are like, "What do I do?" Because they're telehealth, let's just say, and people are like, sometimes they're like, "What else can I do?" One of the main things that they um, that I was reading about was like watching a tennis match. And I was like, oh, yeah, because you follow the ball back and forth. And it's like very calming, apparently. And then and um, there's another technique that I use along with EMDR called the flash technique, which is founded by um, uh, Philip Mansfield. And he's down in the Bay Area and he developed a technique that's tactile. Um, It's a tactile bilateral. So same thing. You can either do the um the visual bilateral you could do uh, uh an auditory bilateral so for example these headphones had a a back and forth it kind of does the same thing and then a tactile one which you could do like the tapping of your uh of your thighs or doing this um and so apparently they all kind of work in the same manner in terms of the impact it has on the brain or the stimulation it has on the brain and that bilateral stimulation acts as a, I mean, it, 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 is it a permanent fix for that? Like it's not an in the moment while you're engaging in the activity or while you're undergoing the treatment that, yeah, your emotional response is kind of separated out. It's a more permanent one that you have to go through this treatment and then you can just carry that through your life that you, you've kind of progressed through this issue. Yeah. That's kind of the idea. I've seen it. Um, I like to use the term let's see if it sticks. Right. So, um, people, let's just say, okay, it took one session to process like, um, I don't know, like, let's just say a car accident, for example, it took one session to process it and you're like, okay, great. Off they go right for a week. Um, and then they come back and then you do a reevaluation. You're like, okay, how did you feel? Did you, did the memory come up for you at all? Um, you know, when you're driving on the road, did that, did it come up then? And people might be like, yeah, there's some residual. I saw, I found myself like flinching, right? As I was, I don't know, driving through the intersection. Um, then you're like, oh, okay, hold on. That didn't, that didn't quite work yet. Uh, or they might say like, overall it did, but I'm still doing the, the flinching, right? Or, or I'm whatever they may be doing. And so you're like, okay, let's go back. So it seems like it's not completely processed. Um, there are times where people have processed things and then let's just say 20 years later, they'll come back and be like, well, it's back. You're like, oh, okay. So you just process that again. Um, I've had to do like so, like several rounds for people where you, you think you got to a zero or a one um, and they really believe that positive cognition, um, that, that more adult perspective, but then they go off for a week or two and they're like, oh yeah, no, it didn't, that didn't stick. And then so you go, you go, you go back, you do it, you send them off again and they're like, not yet. You know, then they just come back in and they're like, okay, this time I think it did as I'm going about my daily life, you know, so it kind of depends on the person. It also depends on the EMDR therapist. When I was in training, that was a really big deal, you know, um, hearing about how other people have been trained as well or finding other like colleagues or um, 
uh, my fellow like trainees were like, oh, I was in a train, a training with this other person and it didn't, I don't think it like, I don't think I learned anything. And so this is why I'm in this one now. And so you're like, oh, okay. So I'm hopefully I'm in the right one, you know? And so it kind of depends on what kind of training is going on as well. Cause really EMDR requires like 50 hours of training. I think it is. Was it 50? I think it was 50 hours of training. And so that's quite a bit and it's mostly practicum. So you're doing EMDR with whoever else is in the training session with you. And so there's a lot of practicing. There's a lot of, you know, then there's the lecture part as well, but it's 50 hours plus, no, it's 40 hours plus another 10 hours of consultation like afterwards. So when you're actually in practice and then you go and consult with um, another EMDR therapist. So you're definitely putting in the time to mm-hmm. understand the skill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And while you're waving the wand, are you asking questions related to the incident or are you kind of trying to bounce back and forth between that happy memory and that bad memory? So there's really, so the client is following the wand and then we're saying these, we're making these comments to keep them present basically. So it's kind of like, that's good. Um, that's right. Just notice. Um, oh, that, that memory's, um, that's an old memory now. So we don't really at all talk to them. We just kind of keep them present because it, it's not because some people will be like, hypnosis doesn't work on me. And I'm like, this is not hypnosis. I'm not trained in hypnosis. Uh, but it sounds to me like hypnosis. You're not even present in the moment. Right. But EMDR, you are. You're awake, you know, um, and then you've got someone making these comments at you that to keep you here present to be like, it's OK. That's good. Right. And then from there, I just stop and I say. Um, why did I forget what I usually say? <laughs> but, oh, I usually say blank it out and take a deep breath. And then you ask what came up for you in relation to that memory, right? Because you're, you're sticking with that memory. So what, when you start bilateral stimulation, after you go through that assessment of like, how disturbing is it? Where are you feeling in your body? Like, what's the negative and positive cognition? You then um, take the three, you take these three items of the, um, the picture that they picked out of that entire memory. That's the most disturbing part. And then you take the negative cognition and then the, um, the emotions related to that memory. And you kind of have them put it all together before you start bilateral stimulation. And then so they get it all together in a nice little package and then they follow your wand. And then from there, you just, you know, after about 25, um, uh, 25 waves, um, you then ask, you know, what came up? And so some, someone might just say, for example, in a car accident situation, they might say, oh, fear. And you're like, just go with that. And then you do another 25 rounds. What came up next? Um, that I'm safe now, right? That's the hope that, like, that usually doesn't happen after the third one. I wish it did, you know, but it's usually about, I don't know, eight, nine or 10 later that they're like, oh, wait, I'm safe now because I'm here. And you're like, go with that. And then you just do another round. Until they are fully into the adult perspective where you where they say maybe three times, oh, I'm here, I'm present. Oh, I'm safe. Um, I'm, you know, I have better insurance, whatever it may be at that point, right? That you then check in with their disturbance level, the, the zero to 10. So there's a zero to 10 disturbance scale. And you say, okay, where are you on a scale of zero to 10? Zero being um, not disturbing, 10 being uh, most disturbing. And they could be like a one. And then you could be like, oh, what what still um, grabs you about this memory? 
and they'll just say, um, I'm still driving. And so I'm a little still a little nervous about it. You're like, OK, just go with that. So you kind of go back to that and you wave the wand until, you know, the next thought. And then you try to get that um, what's called a suds. It's, it's that disturbance level. Try to bring it down to a zero. Now, if it's a really, you know, pretty serious life or death situation that happened and it's very disturbing, um, sometimes they may not get to a zero, like I was saying. You know, and then you check in with um, the validity of cognition, which is that positive cognition of like, um, and that's on a scale of one to seven, seven being true, one being false. Like how true um, is, let's just say the positive cognition in a car accident situation is I'm safe. Um, how true does I'm safe feel to you right now? Oh, I, I know I'm, I'm safe. I know I'm a better driver. I know that, right, whatever, whatever skills maybe somebody picked up along the way with driving, right, that they're like, I, I'm a seven. And you're like, oh, okay. And so if you get that number down to a zero with the disturbance and then with the, um, the positive cognition up to a seven, though the validity of cognition, then you do what's called, um, you do an installation. So you install that for people to really try to get it in there to be like, I'm safe or I'm a good driver, whatever it may be, you know, and then from there, the hope is once you install it um, and then you do like a quick body scan, too. So there is this little bit of a somatic experience in that. Um, so you install all that and then you send them off. And that's the hope that they the hope is that it will it will stay, you know, um, but if it doesn't, then they just come right back. Round two, three, whatever, maybe sometimes. Um, Certain incidences, like we were talking about before, where, you know, when things are a little more complicated, it does take, you know, eight to 10 sessions for just one memory. Because then you could also end up finding out that it's not the right memory and you do what's called a float back. You float back to an earlier memory. Um, so then there's all these other pieces to it where you're like, oh, let's float back to an earlier memory where it has the same um has the same uh, sensation and same emotions like within your body and then your emotions. And so someone might be like, Oh, age four, when this took place and you're like, okay, let's go with that. Let's go with that memory and that incident. And then, so you do the full assessment for that. And then you do the bilateral. And then the idea is that if you can find the first and worst incident, which usually the first and the worst are the same. Sometimes they're not, but usually the first incident is the worst incident that you can then over time. Hopefully the idea, the idea is that then you can knock the rest of other similar incidents down as well. So let's just say I'm like, um, I'm trying to use things that are kind of lighthearted, but none of these are very lighthearted, you know, like, and so it's hard, but, um, but let's just say like grief and loss, you know, um, the de death of my grandmother 15 years ago or something like that. And then recent death of you know, let's just say a sibling or something like that. And um, you find out, well, hold on. I don't think I process this over here yet but from 15 years ago. It doesn't mean it's going to process the death of your sibling. But what's going to happen is that you might be like, OK, this is less disturbing. And I think I can I'm still not able to process one that well, but that's fine. Then you just go and you move to this one now. So you can go from like incident to incident because you can also do what's called so first and worst the most current, and then you do future ones too. There could be fear of what if in the future I get into a car accident, if you're on a, you know, if you're doing a EMDR for a car accident or the fear of like losing somebody else, right? And so you, you could do future incidences too. You can also do EMDR with, um, with like 
scary characters like it, you know, and be like, oh, you're scared of clowns. What happened? Well, my mom let me watch it when I was seven. Right. And you're like, that'll do it. <laughs> my mom did. I was nine, though. But, you know, but but I'm not afraid of clowns. I, actually, I was slightly, but not anymore. But it's interesting that then you could be like, oh, OK, let's, you know, go all the way back because someone could be like, I have a fear of clowns. That's the most current one. I went to the whatever. I went to some fair last week and I saw a clown. It freaked me out. Right. And then you and then you process that because they're like, I don't remember any other clown incidents. And then this is where you do a float back and you find out, no, mom let them watch it at age whatever, five. And then you process that first. You check in with the most recent. They're like, no, I'm still a little, you know, the recent one is still kind of scary, even though this one has been processed. And then you process that one. What if I run into a clown again? You process that one, you know, the what if, you know, and so then you could do and then and so that means it works really well for phobias as well. Right. Of like the first and the worst, the current and the future. Would a situation where it's death related in the sense that you had your grandma die and then maybe your grandfather died mm-hmm. and then the deaths kind of stack up, would that work with EMDR because it is essentially a localized trauma in the sense that it started with your grandma? I know that you said you can only or you want to use it for localized situations and not recurring ones. What's kind of the balance for that? So it's it's interesting, yeah, because I, I guess because I've got like so many different trainers with so many different backgrounds, right? But like I like I said, I usually just go with if this is my EMDR trainer, I'm going to go with what this person said, right? It, anything disturbing, and so usually if someone brings in, let's just say, didn't process grandma's uh, death yet, grandpa's tr- uh, death was more recent, um, and once again, people don't always know that they didn't process some other grief and loss in the past. It's not until you're you're in it with them, even though you try to assess and make sure like this is the memory. Um, so people sometimes just don't recognize it, you know. And so you just start with grandfather first. You're like, all right, let's go for it. And then in between it all, they might be like, hold on, my grandma. And you're like, okay, time out. Like just time out. Pause. You can actually just take a pause and be like. We're going to go with that. And you just change the script on that in terms of the assessment. And that's the bounce back idea Mm -hmm. that you're kind of working back to the root. Yeah. Yeah. What about if you had, say, a veteran who their trauma isn't necessarily localized? Say they've done a couple of tours. Mm -hmm. The trauma that is attached with that. They've seen a lot of things. Would EMDR still be a viable option for them where you can't really localize one issue? Or would they be able to localize one problem? Like maybe... Their first tour, it would just bounce back to that. It it kind of depends on the situation. Um, you know, I I haven't done EMDR with a veteran yet, even though I've worked with veterans in the past. But I, I was actually oddly thinking about this. Like last week, I was like, hmm, you know, like what? Um, I, I was thinking about this. It was like more of a personal matter in terms of a veteran, uh, a family member that I know. I'm a fa- my family member, and um, because his brother was asking me about trauma. And I was thinking about this. I was like, I wonder if I had asked him, you know, is there a very specific disturbing event that took place to start with? You know what I mean? Like, can we go from there in terms of like taking the history? That's where you take the history part. And once again, the history may not be completely accurate at times. And that's where you can kind of switch gears. And that's why it's kind of nice. It's not like it's not so rigid that you 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 can just like I must get it the first time. Right. Um, it's nice if you can, because then you're not really like, oh, I've like not really wasted sessions, but you're like, man, I could have dug deeper. I could have just, you know, gone from that point on. Right. But 
sometimes you, you can't because people can't remember. So people usually just go with what they can remember and what they know. And so, like, let's just say a veteran, they're like, you know, the worst memory that still haunts me. And that's what I always use. I'm like, what's a memory that always, like, haunts you? And they're like, oh, it's like watching a friend die, you know, like while in combat. And you're like, okay, let's go with that, you know. Um, So you can start there as well, like a little bit of this digging. There's also um, with history taking to then come up with that incident and that memory. There's also um, the ACEs score, the adverse childhood experiences. Um, If people are like, okay, on these 10 points, you know, um, my dad going to prison. Right. That's one of them. Have you ever had a family member incarcerated? Um, Is there any alcohol and drug use? Right. Early deaths, verbal abuse, emotional abuse. So you can go with that, too, and use that as your starting point to to kind of explore. But I feel like when people come in, they usually know, like I have people who seek me out for EMDR, but I also have people who are seeking me out for your very um, common, like cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever it may be. And then these incidents come up and you're like, no, time out. EMDR, right? When people are like, I watched somebody attempt to take their life, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, I think this is an EMDR situation, right? Because this is kind of scary. This is a disturbing incident, you know, or I watched a car accident happen. And so once again, you're like, oh, let's process that, you know? Um, it in the world of EMDR, like when you're doing the the when you're doing the training, there's like what's called low-hanging fruit. And it's it, it's Low-hanging fruit is always nice, but it's weird you use the, the word nice for people's trauma. You're like, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, that's good, right? Uh, but it's interesting because people sometimes need that help because EMDR is very like, um, I, I was joking with my consultant um, about this and I was like, I feel like I'm being really bossy. And she's like, yeah, it's very like direct. You have to be really direct with people and be like, no, what, what does it make you? How does it make you feel right now? Right. Because people will go off on their own. And so if you don't pull them back, they're going to want to float off to another incident that has nothing to do with this one. And you're like, no, I'm talking about this incident again. Right. So you do have to like reel them back in. And then you find out maybe the reeling in. You're like, wait, hold on. I'm hearing something different. And then you kind of guide them through that direction. And it's it's fascinating because then you could you can also um, I was telling you about the flash technique. You can throw that in there, too. So there's all these other things that can happen within uh, EMDR. You could throw in the flash technique if people are stuck. Usually people get stuck at around a four. Disturbance level is at a four. It's been a four for six rounds of bilateral, right? Um, And you're like, okay, there's something going on here. What you could do is use the flash technique. Um, People come in already really escalated. The earthquake that happened in December. People are just like, what in the world, right? And so already you can, and then all the aftershocks. You can really quickly just use the flash technique, try to bring them down, continue to use the flash technique or just go back into EMDR. Um, and then so you could kind of stop in the middle of EMDR, use the flash techni- technique. Um, you also don't even have to go with what people say. Let's just say I'm doing EMDR and you're like, oh, the thought that came up was. And maybe this is not a good example, but let's just say anger or something like that, you know. And but usually with anger, you can do um, squeeze a towel or whatever it may be. Actually, no, a really good example is um, grief and loss again, the death of somebody. I'm having a really hard time processing this death of um, grandparent. OK, if the grandparent was in here, what, what would they say to you? So you can do what's called called um, cognitive interweaves, too. You don't really necessarily have to go with the last thing where they're like, I'm really sad. And you're like, OK, well, how about 
What would you say to this person if they were here? And then you do the bilateral as they're talking it through. They're not saying it out loud. They're just, you know, talking it through in their head with whatever they want to say to this person. And then sometimes people are like, uh, I'm not done. You're like, fine, another round <laughs> of you talking to this person, right? And then you go ahead and go for that. And so there's all these different little tricks and techniques that could then be dropped into EMDR as and well. And the flash technique being, what does that look like? So the flash technique is um, you have a positive, um, engaging um, memory. Like, for example, let's just say I'm having a really hard time processing the recent earthquakes, right? We keep hearing all these aftershocks. And I'm coming in and I'm really escalated. I'm really stressed out. Um, and let's just say I'm like, okay, uh, my positive engaging memory or, you know, topic I want to use is um, a dog. One of my dogs. I did just have a good time with my dogs. Great. So what I'll do is like, I'll, um, as the therapist, I'll tell you to start tapping, which is either it's going to be some of this business or you could do some of this stuff. And um, I'll start asking you questions about your dog. I'll just say, okay, tell me about your dog. What's your dog's name? How old are they? What are some things you do? And so people just start saying whatever it is, right, about their dog. And usually it's happy because it's positive, right? And then from there you say flash. And so you've already, I've already given them instructions to flash their eyes three to five times when I say flash. And it's kind of like it interrupts people. You're saying it, it's slightly rude. I feel like I'm like flash, you know, then so they flash real quick. and then. We go right back into that conversation. You know, um, does your dog, you know, where was your dog from? And did your dogs have any siblings or whatever it may be? And so you just kind of engage with them about whatever topic it is they pick. And you do that for a good, I feel like it's been, I usually do it for a good three to five minutes. And then throughout you're dropping in the flash and then they stop talking, they flash and then they, they're three to five blinks, they go right back in. And then at the end of it, you can, or in between, you can check in and just be like, okay, where's that disturbance? You use that same zero to 10 scale and say, where is this disturbance now? Right. Cause you don't really, you don't even go into the, um, the memory at that point or the incident. It's just kind of hovering over here is what it is. You know, so you're, you, we've already brought up the disturbing incident, but then we then switch gears to this um, flash technique and you have this, you know, positive engaging you know, whatever it is that you're bringing in. And so from there, it's just kind of on the peripheral. And then you check in. So how disturbing is the incident of whatever, maybe, oh, the earthquake, that's what we're using. How, how, how disturbing is the, the earthquake to you on a scale of zero to 10 now? Let's just say I came in and I was like flustered and I was like at a nine out of 10. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm at a six now. I'll feel better, you know, and then from there, as the therapist, you then decide, do I continue flash or do I go into straight EMDR? And you can also switch back later, too, if you're like, "Ooh, EMDR is not working. You can actually flash through the entire thing if you want to and get it all the way down to a zero and just be done. I was uh, reading some research about this the other week, um, and this is this was just one research, but they found there was no difference between the flash technique and EMDR in terms of positive results. Uh, and so EMDR definitely, um, and, and they were saying that the clients that they had, um, they had in this research preferred flash, um, because there's not a lot of this moving the eye. There's not a lot of this engaging with the memory of the, the, the disturbing instant with flash. Once again, you're talking about something positive, right? My day at the beach, my vacation to wherever, you know, 
um, my children, right? And so when you're engaging and you're talking about something positive, you don't even have to touch that whole, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm whatever it may be at that point. And so there's no um, positive cognition, there's no negative cognition, there's no, um, you know, where do you feel in your body? There's none of that. But it is a technique that is either to be added to it. But, um, you know, as I was going through the training for both EMDR and Flash, it was interesting that um, some people just use straight flash and it works really well as well. So, I, you know, I like it. Some people think it's weird because there's, you know, you're doing this business and you're talking, right? And, and, and I'm doing it with you, right? Or some people do this. And so they're like, this is really weird. I'm like, is that more weird than me doing this? Right? So it's, it's interesting that, but people come in and they're like, I want to do that again. I'm like, which that? Right. And, and they're like, I want to do both the EMDR and and flash. And so I'm like, oh, OK. Is the idea behind flash that bilateral stimulation again or is mm-hmm. there it's the same process? And it's tactile now this time. Right. Because you're doing this business, this business. And so instead of doing the actual like visual um, bilateral. And once again, I've never um, I haven't done any research on the um, auditor, the uh, auditory bilateral yet. But the, I'm going to look into that a little more. That's really interesting. That's like, another avenue that you could go yeah. down mm-hmm. in terms of bilateral stimulation. Yeah. It's fascinating that that works. I mean, the yeah. brain is so crazy that you can kind of work through some traumatic experience in that way by just going through these cues in some sense. Right. That, yeah, we're working through it. We might just be doing something here and it kind of feels silly, but I mean, you're seeing progress. Right. You're seeing progress very quickly. Like I said, I... I've had several people tell me it took me X amount of years to go through all those emotions that I just went through in all of 20 to 25 minutes, if not 15 minutes, you know, and people will break it down. They're like, I was depressed for the first two years and then I was upset and depressed for two more additional years. Right. But then they were like, I was just really sad just now. And then I got really mad. And then I thought I was crazy. Right. People always have that one. They're just like, am I nuts? Because I just went through. All- That's exactly what people will ask me. I think I'm crazy. Like in the middle of EMDR, I was like, why? And they're like, because I just went through a bunch of emotions. I'm like, no, that's common. That's just human. Like we, we hold multiple emotions at the same time at times. Right. And people are like, oh yeah, okay. You know? And, and so then you continue on, you know? And so it's really, it, it really does yield results very quickly. I'm pretty amazed. I, you know, if you asked me 12 years ago, I was like, EMDR, what? You know, this is weird because I read about it 12 years ago and I was like, I don't know. It's kind of witchcrafty, you know. And then um, what in the world made me even decide to take it or take the course? I don't remember. Oh, I think I was like, I want to do this because there's not that many EMDR therapists here in Humboldt County. Um, there, there are quite a few now. Um, but it was interesting. I did it because I was like, for the community, I will. Right. And so I go out and I do this and then I'm in the practicum and then I'm picking my low hanging fruit memories. Right. That they can process within that same like all of like 30 minutes. And it, it worked. It worked. All two times, I think it was two, no, three times. Oh, well, the first time I couldn't really get like a solid memory. I thought it was solid and it wasn't. But then the other two times, um, no, it worked. Like to this day, like the one with the dog and the other one was claustrophobia. I am no longer claustrophobic. It's super weird. I can definitely now squeeze into small spaces and feel okay. And I've done it. Like I've, I've like exposed myself to it, you know, getting into small cramped spaces, um, 
getting into aerial silk. That was actually why I, I decided to do um, one on claustrophobia because I was like, couldn't get into that aerial silk and now without like feeling nauseous. And then now I'm just like, don't even think about it. And so I'm, I'm seeing that it works. And, and once again, I just picked something kind of silly because you know, not that silly, but something easy, you know, for them to process during the practicum. And so you weren't even wholesale on it when no. you started. You're like, no. I'll just do this in yeah. case somebody in the community wants it. And then right. going through the process of the training, you realized, oh, there might actually be something to this. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a total groupie. You know, How funny I, is that? It's, it's super funny because I was telling my consultant that I was like, I was not on board. I thought I was joining some witchcrafty, like some woo woo. Yeah. And then, and then she was like, that's funny because a lot of people say that, right? Until they've done it. Um, but most people will have done EMDR as a therapist in terms of they are a client or they were a client and then they go and do the training. At least that was my cohort. And so that's really fascinating. And then, like I said, I, I yeah, I was not, there was no full buy in from me. I was like, for the community, I will. And then I go in and I'm like, nope full full board like full buy-in at this point you know and i remember when i was done with that i was like who can i practice on and i was like can i do this on myself <laughs> i think there's an app for this there is there's like the the bilateral app as long as you have like a monitor that you know there's like the bouncing ball that goes back and forth um i haven't tried it on myself yet that way though and so for you was i know we talked a little bit about psychedelic assisted therapy mm -hmm. was that kind of the same epiphany of you experienced it and then realized oh there might be some validity to this or was that already on your radar that was on my radar already yeah i definitely went in um more like i was definitely all in with that already you know but even with like my other modality i'm currently in training for like neuroaffective relational model i went through the level one training which is um open to really kind of the general not general i take that back um to people that aren't therapists so like you could be a, mas uh, a massage therapist you could be a nurse and you could enter this training but level two all the way to four it's strictly for lmfts and or like uh, marriage family therapists licensed clinical social workers um uh, and counselors and um and psychologists and so it was interesting that i didn't even have my complete buy-in with that you know it was more like i was reading books around it i was like do i want to and once again i was like the community does not have a norm therapist there's one there's one norm therapist and i think and i think carrie um carrie uh, Griffin? Karen Griffin, yeah, is is also um, she's NARM informed as well. Then I think her therapist is um, a NARM therapist, but you know that's she's her in her own group with her ketamine um, assisted therapy. And so um, I don't know of another NARM therapist locally. And once again, I'm I'm only like a quarter of the way through with level two at this point. And so, but I did not have you know I'm like I'm paying all this money and like. I'm not even completely in, you know, and then now recently I was like, okay, I'm in, right? It's, yeah, it's all these practicums that we do and all these dyads and triads that I'm like, okay, you got me, you know, like I remember the level one when I was, I was doing level one of neuroaffective relational model. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I think I just had a, the incorrect mindset. I was like, oh, they're doing pure norm. They're not using other modalities within it and they kept saying even in level two they're like no you can add other things into it as you move about you know and i was just like this is so strict and you know confining and rigid and i'm like wait i wasn't listening that's what was going on i wasn't listening that they were saying this is what we're teaching it's pure norm and it made a lot of sense when i was like oh 
got it. You're not confining me to this. Right. And, and that's where I'm like, OK, hold on. I'm seeing this work. We're doing dyads, triads, practicums on this. And I can see the the um, how helpful it could be. You know, what does NARM look like in practice? So um, it starts off with what would you like for yourself in this session or uh, what would you like out of our time today? Um, and and from there, the idea is that it's an in-depth model where um, we don't really they don't really look at um, behaviors more like how do we I guess to summarize it, it's how do we reconnect to ourselves and reconnect to our hearts? Um and it was, it's really sad, yet it makes a lot of sense. You know, there's a saying that they say, you know, with uh, developmental trauma, it's like you're healing from a broken heart. And, and so that's what we're doing, right? We're reconnecting to ourselves. So hopefully over time, as we process these traumas and as we figure out how to become regulated with our emotions, that, you know, really we just need ourselves to do that. You know, the supports are fantastic, of course, right? External um, supports such as our partners and our friends and family, that's all really important as well. But then it's really about like, how do we reconnect to ourselves? Because we already have all the resources within us. We're just not able to see it. We're not able to connect. We're not able to come home. We're not able to like reconnect, re reconnect with our heart at this point. And that's the idea of NARM too. It's like, but you know, between that, there's a lot of, um, you know, exploring. Um, it does really lift a lot of pressure off myself as a therapist because it's you're just being curious with the person so for example let's just say you know someone brings in i want to explore anger um you know that one's pretty easy or i want to explore my depression um i'm i'm uh and then you say okay um you know if you were less depressed uh what would that bring to you you kind of keep asking very similar questions as you're saying that. How do you feel about that? What are you feeling right now when you're saying that? Right. And it's kind of the same question until you can get to what's called a contract. And you might say and then let's just say from depression, you find out it's confidence that you're seeking. And so you'll then the, the contract would be. Um, how does it sound to explore what's in the way of you feeling confident? And they say, yeah, that sounds great. And then from there, there's like another pillar. There's like, it's based off of four pillars. Right now we've only been on, we've only been introduced to pillar two. I mean, I've been introduced to all four because there's books on it. There's, um, you know, I, I've done level one training on it, but you set that contract. And then from there, you, you get really curious with the person in terms of somatically and also on this um, more kind of like qu question asking level, right? You deconstruct um, what whatever it is that they're bringing into the room, you ask them more questions around it. So it is this kind of a little bit of excavation of like, give me an example of the last time you felt really confident. Let's just say we're going back to that same example, right? And then they they'll say, oh, um, I you know studied a lot for my chemistry test. I felt really good. I took the test and I got an A. And then I was also really proud of myself. On top of that, I felt confident, and then I came out proud. Um, a week later when I got my scores, whatever it may be. Um, and then you kind of chop that up with them to to walk through that experience and you break it down. Like, what was it that made you really confident during that time? And as you're telling me about this um, chemistry test and you studying and you putting in that time, how does it feel right now? Right. So you're just getting into this scenario with them, like really in a deep way of breaking it down. And how does that model differ from just I was supposed the general questioning of regular therapy. Would you say regular therapy or just 
Well, it kind of depends on the modality again. You know, so like, for example, I think a big one that gets used a lot is cognitive behavioral therapy. So changing the way you think to change the way you feel. It's really hard to have people change their thought process, right? Like when we we as people just relearn things, you know, like um, I'm thinking about like very, very, I always use this example. It's kind of funny where someone's like, Christopher Columbus discovered America. And, and then you read some books and you're like, nope, you know, everything tells you that's not true. Right. And so you're like, there's that relearning. Right. And so but that one's a lot more like easy because you're like, no, these are facts now. These are facts. With the other part of when you're talking about like cognitive behavioral therapy, now you're talking about your emotions. And even though I always use the term, well, the proof is in the, p- the pudding. You're seeing this. People are telling you you're doing a good job. People still won't believe it. Right. They're not all of they're not relearning. They're not saying that I did a good job, even though 50 people came up to him and were like, good job on this one, I don't know, event you put on. And they're like, no, I'm terrible. You're like, what? That, the, there, it's just not that easy because there's like emotion involved. There's shame involved, right? There's, uh, there's, these aren't just like these like history book facts. And you're like, oh, let's change my thinking there. You know? And so with CBT, it is, it is very different than like you're saying like, well, what's the difference with other therapies, right? Like, then you have other ones like motivational interviewing or um, what else is out there right now that I can't even think about? Or IFS, parts therapy. That's another one that works on complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, or there's um, solutions focused, right? Or just salt ther- therapy, all these different things out there that they all kind of have their own. It's weird because I know Narm is like, we don't really have a goal. And it's like, we don't, but we also kind of do. You have an agenda. We always have an agenda as to what it is we're working, right? Because it's a modality. It's a process. Um, CBT has a bunch of different interventions, right? Restructuring people's thinking, right? Um, Giving people other ideas, right? Laddering techniques of if this is true and then what? If that were true and then what? So there are a lot of similarities at the same time. But I think NARM tries to really get away from the cognitive part where they're really tapping into the somatic part. Um, of what's going on, but you're also chopping up some of your examples and experiences related to whatever issue it is you're bringing up. Like, for example, confidence, right? I was really confident here. Let's chop that up. What was that entire process? Explain it to me, right? Or there's the flip side of tell me a time when you weren't confident and you could chop that up. So you can go different ways with NARM as well. Um, Or like I said, with IFS, that's called parts therapy. So that's way different. It's, there's a lot of somatic um, work going on, but there's also a lot of cognitive work going on. Because, for example, it's the same question in IFS. What would you like for yourself today? Or how, how was your week going? And you might maybe bring up some things that happened this week. And then, and then what they do, the therapist will do, is kind of look for those parts for you. Oh, I hear that there's maybe like an anger part or anxi- like an anxious part that came out. You know, and then they'll be like, do you want to be with that part right now? And so you kind of either you sit back and you kind of get relaxed and then you kind of tap into that anxiety part. What was it trying to tell you this week or, or in that incident or that particular event or situation? What was it trying to tell you? Right. And then other parts might come out like I was really anxious, but then I also found out I was like angry. And then sometimes it ties into multi-generational trauma or, or as they call it in the IFS world, um, legacy trauma. And then so the idea is that we start to map and identify our parts. And then we see how all these different parts make up who we are. And then from there, you kind of start trying to regulate the parts in terms of emotions, right? If, if 
if anxiety came out, um, let's just say we're running late, you know, um, and anxiety came out and I'm like full board at a 10 out of 10. And I'm like, I'm late. Right. Fumbling purse flying everywhere kind of situation. Right. Got a thousand things in your hand along with six bags. Right. And so I always like see that image. I'm like, wait a second. I'm, I am late. But where am I late to? Right. You can now stop and say, hold on. I am late. Oh, it's it's my client. I'm late to go see. I could probably just text my client and let them know I'm running five minutes behind. And that will be fine. Crisis averted. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. Right. If I just took three seconds, 10 seconds to stop myself to say, why is my anxiety here? Because I'm running really late. I'm not really running that late, but let's say I'm five minutes late. You know, um, let me just text this person. It's fine. And you're like, oh, really, that anxiety maybe needed to be at a two because it's all you know, there needs to be an alert or an alarm going off to let you know, do something about this, right? But it didn't have to be at a 10. You didn't have to try to make it there on time anymore. You just let them know, I'm running late. If you have that opportunity to say, I'm running late, you know? Um, but sometimes you also think you're running late and all of a sudden you're at a 10 and you're like, I got like 20 minutes. I'm not running late, but something internally just triggered because I'm, I'm an anxious person. Because it's at a cellular level now, right? This is where that whole idea of like panic attacks, you know, people are just like, I don't know where it came from. Like, well, this is why it's called an attack, right? Because it comes out of nowhere. And at that point, you're now you're talking about whatever trauma that may have taken place. And now it's on a cellular level, right? Like it's because it's it doesn't just sit in our brain where we're like, we can recall it and be like, oh, that was a stressful time. And then it goes away. Like we over time... There's this mind-body connection that it starts to sit in our cells. And what do our cells do? They reproduce, right? They're just little carbon, they're just co copies of one another. And so a lot of times you'll see that, you know, in trauma-informed therapy, they'll talk a lot about that we just don't store it in our memories at that point. It's in our bodies. This is where that mind-body connection comes to play. And then there's the book, like, The Body Keeps the Score, you know, and it talks a lot about how it is that we store our trauma. If we don't process it as well. Sorry, just like segued into like. No, that was a great segue. Like, but, but, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, that, that that's what trauma can do. You know, when we took, look at all these different types of modalities, I don't really care what modality it is at this point. It's really kind of as a therapist, you just choose the ones that sound correct for you. You know, they sound good to you. And I think a lot of times people will expect you know, uh, I had somebody ask me today, they're like, how long have you been doing this for? I'm like, not that long, really. I've been a, I've been a psychotherapist for solidly a year and six months. I've been an, a licensed clinical social worker for two years. I've, um, I've been a social worker with a master's degree for 12 years, though. I chose not to become licensed immediately following um, and I'm glad I didn't, actually. I'm really glad I didn't. I really do think, I really do think the state needs to, like, that's a whole other topic, but I do think the state needs to, like, maybe look at how people should not get their AC, their um, associate's um, licensure immediately following, um, following graduate school. Because I think people miss out on these other things that can happen where they can integrate providing resources and, and therapy at the same time, especially in this community where it's so small that that's almost needed. It's like there's a both and that can happen here. 
and I'm I'm and it might not be for everybody. For me, it worked out where I needed that both end where I'm like, okay, I'm really good at crisis work, but I can also be really good at therapy. And then now I'm like, I'm getting older and maybe my body is just tired. I don't really want to do crisis work anymore. I don't want to run around town all the time. So I now want to move over here and do therapy. And as I'm doing it, I'm like, okay, I was using all these different modalities in my world of doing crisis work. Um, what do I want to do now? Oh, it's totally different than what I was doing then. You know, like these new modalities that keep coming out. I'm like, oh, like I'm really interested in this direction because I've seen people, you know, I've seen it and I have not experienced it. I've seen people suffering. You know, I have my own suffering, but it looks very different, right? Um, in this community, I've seen a lot of like, you know, a lot of basic needs issues, you know, um, with the people I've worked with and then a lot of grief and loss and then a lot of like uh, death and dying. And, you know, so it, I, what I've seen is very different. And then from, from it all though, I'm like, you know, what I've decided that I want is like dignity for people. That's it at the end of their life, you know? And so if I can provide that, you know, th through this like more trauma-informed care, that we can then kind of carry on our lives in a more dignified, peaceful way, even if it's just for another five years or, you know, 70 years. That's great. If you have more time, great. If you don't, then at least the last bits of it was, was good internally, you know? And so that's the thought process that well, I have. Well, yeah. And I think what's interesting about our current day and ages i think people are waking up to the idea that a lot of that can be achieved through psychedelics mm -hmm. is that there's this thing that on top of therapy for mm -hmm. sure can can alleviate a lot of these suppressed feelings these emotions allow you to work through some traumatic experiences and then come out on the other side and i don't know if you would say in a shortened time span than it would take without them or even in some cases open a door that you wouldn't have been able to get to otherwise. It, yeah, it's the shortened time span. So <laughs> when I was at um, Carrie Griffin's office. Shout out to I, Carrie. She's yeah, awesome. I know. She's Humble great. Center for New Growth. Yeah. <laughs> I, it was interesting. And then going through my own, um, uh, maybe if some of my clients see this, it's fine. I don't care. But my, my own psilocybin um, assisted therapy experience. And then going through therapy myself, I'm still in therapy, you know, um, because therapists have their own things, too. And so when people are like, therapists need to work out their own stuff, I'm like, oh, you just objectified me. I'm a human being. Let me be right. Let me be me on my personal time. But it's it's interesting because I have watched this, like being a therapist, being in therapy, um, being on psychedelics or psilocybin and then watching, like being very lucky to go into Carrie's office and watching several sessions of IV um, ketamine-assisted therapy. I, when I saw that first two, or I think first session of, of ketamine-assisted therapy, I was like, whoa, okay. I'm like, this is the only way I can describe it. Talk therapy is like a brisk walk to possible processing of trauma or whatever is going on with us. Psilocybin is like a jog. That's how I felt, you know? And then there, of course, there's everything else in between. You've got LSD, you've got MDMA. I have yet to see that in a therapeutic level. I wish I can. I hope I will soon. And then I've, I saw ketamine and I'm like, that's like a sprint to these doors that that was going to take forever for us to get there. You know, and so every time I get to collaborate, you know, with Carrie and her team, I'm like, yes. And so a lot of times I'm just guiding people as they're going through it, like in my own office. Um, and then so then you could line up a bunch of other things or do it at the same time, too, to be like, 
ooh, okay, hold on. Is it a good time right now to do EMDR while they're in the midst of ketamine, right? Do I wait? And you can gauge that a little bit. You can also ask the client and they'll be like, yeah, let's wait. Let's do one thing at a time. And I'm like, great, you know, because um, then things are coming up and people are like willing and and more emotionally capable to confront these issues, the trauma, whatever it may be, shame that's coming up. And more self-aware oh, in yeah. a number of different ways. Right. That's the best part, that recognition. You know, when when that recognition comes, I'm just like, I feel like I've won the lottery. And it's not even about me, right? It's not about me at all. And I'm just like, okay, wow, we 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 got there. But I, I've noticed with, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy, you get there so much faster with that recognition because people will kind of like jog around the recognition of whatever issue it may be or patterns it may be and they they will get, they're going to bring it up for 6 months but once again it's like they know it but they don't know it right and and then so when i see that switch i'm like oh you know it you know and i'll say that and people are like yeah i think i know it now you know and i'm like no but you know it and they're like yeah yeah i do and then they're like okay i'm exhausted now or they're like, I'm not feeling so well because I just I just I went through that. Yeah, I just went through it. And now I know. Right. And and those are like really great moments. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is why I do the work I do. This is why I keep wanting to learn these different uh, modalities that come out. Right. Or I want to try it for myself. And then I want to go and get the training for it. And then I want to give it to the community um, because because there is there is like a you know, there's there's just so many so many things out there for behavioral health. At this point, and it's it's a it's a very exciting time. I at least I feel it is. You know, I don't know if other therapists think the same, but um, maybe it's just like because I'm like nerding out on it recently. You know, but I'm just like I love it. I do, and I'm glad that I went the route of licensure now. It, I, like the, I wouldn't have changed it. You know, for, for really anything at that point. I'm like, yeah, I did what I did, and that's okay. You know, because um, I feel like I've honed in into like. The, the modalities that I want to be trained in to hopefully, you know, help people here in this community because we have really high ACE scores here in this community. I think we're second. The last time, it, I forget what research group it was I looked through, it was in San Francisco. And there was a, um, they did publish for the 54 counties, right? That's how many counties we have? 54? Yeah. In California? <laughs> yeah. Okay. But we were number two when it came to ACEs scores. So we had some of the highest ch adverse childhood experiences score. I think the, the number one might have been Butte County, I want to say, somewhere in, in the valley. I can't quite remember right now. But Mendocino and Humboldt County, top two, you know, with having childhood adverse, I mean, ch uh, adverse childhood experiences. So once again, parents incarcerated, right? Um, uh, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, um, death of a family member, all these different things, these 10 categories um, that, they, that they've, you know, lumped it all into for, for an ACE score. Which is crazy because we're not a very big county. No. What are we, 134,000 people, right? I think, yeah. And so that's, yeah, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of trauma. That's, <laughs> yeah. I, for, I forget the actual breakdown right now because they ended up breaking it down to like by the age and by the ACE score. And, and I kind of remember right now off the top of my head, I could, you know, don't quote me on this. I could find the I could find the research because I, you know, used it as a reference for um, for something. But I think it was 75 percent of the adults here in Humboldt County at least has a ACE score for more 
just the adult part. And then I forget about the children right now. So they broke it up with an age, like I said, and then the amount of uh, the, 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 the scores itself. And I'm, I'm not, I'm familiar with ACEs. I'm not that well versed on it. Mm-hmm. Are, is it a weighted system across the board where each thing is just like checking a box? And so, uh-huh. oh, you've got this and then that's how we tally it up. Yeah. yeah so a death like, mm-hmm. of a family member is the same as like being abused. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's just like one basically you just check that box uh-huh yeah and it was i think it was i forget developed maybe in the early 2000s in down in san diego and in, in kaiser and so that's you know i forget how they even came about it some sort of research you know but it makes a lot of sense and once again now it's being looked at f- with emdr when you do um a history taking before you do the assessment right that you're like oh hold on we're trying to hone in on what are some of these issues that had happened in you know your childhood which is developmental trauma at that point. Well, when you experience something as a child, it's a lot more challenging, I would imagine, to unpack because you were just so susceptible to things because you haven't lived enough life, you mm-hmm. don't have enough experience, you haven't kind of gone through the motions in a lot of ways. And so when you're hit with some challenging times as a child, it's almost like obviously your world is falling apart because... That's your world. And right. each day is an eternity. And to go through something as a kid, you just, the, the sky is falling. Right. And then you start taking it on yourself. Right. And this is where you get the shame part. Right. And because there's so many people that live with shame that I see that I'm like, oh, this is, it's thick and it's real. You know, it's everywhere, everywhere I go. And I also see like a lot of themes going on. There's weekly themes as well. It's very strange how the world works or I don't know who, who, I don't know. I don't, you know, I get it. I might get like, kind of like, you know, all weird. And like, sometimes I'm like, oh, is like Libra in retrograde, right? (laughs) Because when I used to work at adult protective services, you would get these calls that were like, someone stole my gold coins. And I'm like, what? And then you would get another one. I had these gold coins and it was stolen. I'm like, someone prank calling me? And I'd look and I'm like, that's a totally different number, right? Or you'd have themes about bears. Oh my gosh, there's bears everywhere. I'm like, why are we getting calls here about bears, right? But same as like um, uh, in my therapy, I'm like, I feel like I said this already 25 times this week. And then I look back and I'm like, yeah, I said it about 15 times. Because I'll look back in my notes and I'm like, wow, it's the same thing that I said. It's the same theme that came up this week, you know? And it's really interesting how, you know, common we are and how similar we are. In terms of like things that we go through, I mean, there's a lot of like right now, even myself, there's seasonal affective disorder, right? I know that there's a saying that it's like only strangers talk about the weather. I'm like, yeah, unless you live in Humboldt County and we've only had 200 and I guess they hadn't counted it today or yesterday. But I think I read the Lost Coast Outpost and they were like, we've only had 209 hours of sun since January 1st to like June like 28th at 1 p.m. or something. And I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah. And it was like 700 some odd hours of um, overcast. Well, that's one of those (laughs) temporary depressive aspects is seasonal depression. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. you're just not getting enough sun. Yeah. And so you feel a little gloomy. Right. Which is another really big thing here in Humboldt County. I know we joke about about vitamin D deficiency. Oh, like usually I'm like, please go get please go get a set of labs. Like, please talk to your doctor. When I used to, you know, work with a medical team, it was easier when I'm like, oh, they need, they might need a panel with like vitamin D included. Oh yeah. And you don't know how many people that come back to me that are like, so I'm on these massive horse pills for vitamin D. 
and they're actually prescribed, right? It's not, I went to Costco and got it over the counter. A lot of people are like, I have to take this like 13 week course. I have to take this six week course. I have to take this whatever course. And then I have to go and do the supplements because, you know, and then guess what? Vitamin D deficiency leads to depressive symptoms. Shocker. Yeah. Right. So there's also that. Right. And so there are a lot of different things that are happening here in Humboldt where I'm like, okay, there's the high ACEs score. There's the lack of sun. Right. And sometimes you're like, which one, which one is it? You know, the chicken and, or the egg type situation. Yeah. And then sometimes you're like, oh, it's a little bit of both, you know? And then also another thing I was thinking about earlier, I forgot what we were talking about, but um, people who have also been in, it's really interesting watching people process their own trauma, especially older people who maybe had, um, let's just say, you know, depression from whatever trauma it was that they've experienced as a kid or a young adult, and then they process it, and then they age, and then their bodies start to change. And guess what happens? Well, we need more rest, right? Like, I mean, I could tell, like, I not no longer, you know, I, could, I think back 20 years ago, I was like, no, I could just keep going. It's 4 a.m. I'm, I'm still going, right? I'm like typing a paper. I'm doing whatever. But it's interesting because now, You've got, um, at least I'm thinking about my aging population people, they can't decipher depression from tiredness now because they've been going for so long that all of a sudden they're like, what do you mean my body is aging? You know, and then I'm like, wait, time out. Is this depression or is this you're exhausted because you work harder than I do Man in terms of manual labor, right? That I hear people going out there and they're like, oh, I worked like a 10 hour day today mowing a lawn and working on someone's like landscaping or whatever. And I'm like, no wonder you're sleeping for like two days, right? No wonder you're out because you're not, you know, 25 working on someone's lawn for 10 hours. You're 72 doing this work, right? Well, and then even counter that with the opposite spectrum of I only got five hours of sleep and right. I was doing all that. Right. And that's just how I've been going for the past X number of years. Right. And then so I get people that come in and they're like, I think I'm depressed. And they tell me about it. And I'm like, and then you start having to excavate. You're like, wait, hold on. And so now there's more insight. You're like tired versus depressed. Let's talk about this. Right. And then you find out you're like, not depressed, exhausted. Right. And so you're like, okay, you're like, those are easier in the sense that you're like, okay, that one was kind of fast. And the therapy um, sessions may not last as long. But you're, it's, it's interesting to, to watch that as well when people have processed their trauma or they have secure attachments from childhood. Um, and, and that's with the aging population. At and, and we're all the aging population because we're constantly aging. You know, like I could tell I'm like, oh, yeah, don't, no, I can't do that. Like I'm, I've come to terms with it already. And I think I kind of have that like, you know, I feel like maybe I have a little bit of um like a step up because I've worked with so many aging people and this is why I'm like, Oh, I've had advanced directive. Oh, I know what, what tired looks like now. Right. Oh, I got this. Right. And so it's been interesting to watch that too. You know, um, how, when we think we're depressed, but we're really tired that then it could lead to anxiety. And then now you've really kind of created a little bit of a monster in terms of now I'm really anxious because I'm, I think I'm depressed or I'm anxious. And then I'm, and then it causes depression. Right. Because I thought I'm, I'm just I think I'm doing too much. Right. And so there's that where it, it's fascinating where we kind of like are, I guess it's still kind of dysregulation at that point, you know, that still needs to be worked through. But it looks but the therapy looks very different. I wouldn't take a, 
you know, I wouldn't do EMDR for them. I wouldn't do um, NARM for them. I wouldn't do, you know, so it's interesting where then you kind of go back to the, the, what would be called, quote unquote, the basics of CBT at that point, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? That part really is like changing the way you think to change the way you feel at that point. I can't change the tiredness. You just have to rest. But the way you think, at least, is that I think you're exhausted when you tell me about your day, you know? And so it's interesting, like, once again, the modalities you you pick out to use based on what people are bringing in. And then there has to be a lot of um, um, investigating around it as well, because people come in with something and then you're like, is it usually off the bat? You want to be like, it is. And then you're like, hold on. No, this isn't. This may not be it. You know, so it's yeah. I mean, and we're, we're so complex, but so similar. You know, it's fascinating that like I'm I'm very lucky to to get to like talk to people all day long and you know and and I'm like, oh, like we're not very different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I don't really have a lot to it's like people are like, is that all you have to say about about that? About your job? I'm like, yeah, but it's like a little bit of a conundrum in my head. Like I'm trying to process it, you know, that I'm like, oh, this is, you know. We're not so different. And I really hope people understand that, you know, because sometimes it is pretty heartbreaking when people come in and, and they take their difference or like and they really kind of shame themselves with it, you know, and I'm like, wait, hold on. You're not that different, you know, and or people will ask for validation. I just need I just need validation. That I'm not going crazy, I'm like, because you're not. You know, and and I'm like, wow, like, did someone never tell you that other people have anxiety, too? And a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of humor in my therapy. So I'm always like, well, why do you think there's these breathing exercises? Why do you think the word anxiety is around it? Because it happens to other people. right? And people are like, yeah, I didn't think about it like that, you know, uh, or they're just like I had a panic attack. And I'm like, well, it's an attack. I mean, I don't believe you can schedule one in yeah. <laughs> like a pencil a i've got pencil. too much going on today yeah. i can't i can't do this right now <laughs> right right and so it's so it's really interesting that validation is also really needed even though there are these words depression rage anger de- you know um uh, anxiety and people are like i think i'm going crazy because i have this i'm like no you don't it it's a word it's been a word this is not new Right. We didn't just make this word up for you right now. And people are like, oh, okay, You know, and so you could go from there and be like, all right, now let's talk about the anxiety itself and 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 where the difficulty of regulation is again, you know. Um, So, yeah, it's like I said, very interesting field that I never thought I was going to be in as a child. Funny how life works out like that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Did not think I was going to be doing anything close to this, actually. So, but I'm glad I'm, but I'm glad I'm doing it. I'm glad I'm in this community doing it too. I think we really need it here. And I think this is like a very special place in terms of just, you know, where the ocean meets like the, the redwoods and, and it's hard to get up here, which is great. Right. I love it. Oh my God, you can't get up here. Okay, great. You know, you can't come in. And, and, but then it's, it's, it is, you know, it's special, but it's also difficult for people to come up here, which means that we have not a lot of services. Um, and, you know, services are difficult. And thank goodness there, there's some things out of COVID that 
you know, I will say thank goodness for COVID, which is telehealth. It's really opened things up for people to, you know, see their doctors in San Francisco without always going down there now. Right. Or seeing a therapist that specializes in something um, because we don't have it here in Humboldt County. You know, um, my therapist is in Utah. You know, and so I'm lucky that I can go and seek out therapy elsewhere because we don't have that many people that does um, internal family systems here. Right. And this is why I'm choosing to do EMDR. This is why I'm choosing to do NARM. Also, it piques my interest, you know, but at the same time, I'm like, there's all these cutting edge stuff that we don't get because we're not the big city, you know, because it's remote and it takes a certain kind of people to live here. It really does. Yeah, that's the challenge in being landlocked in the sense that we are, is that access to just good healthcare in general is, it can be challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and I see that, you know, on a daily basis. I, I hear about a lot of people and their medical stressors in terms of not really, when I say medical stressor, not like I have this diagnosis or I have, or I, um, it's always about, I couldn't get into my doctor's office. Um, the, the, uh, the office receptionist was really rude to me, um, whatever it may be, you know, because we're so impacted here and I get it, you know, I mean, I, I've worked for, you know, a couple of, of clinics here, you know, and, and I, I see it, you know, I just got cut from my primary care and I'm like, I can't even be mad at you. I'll just go somewhere else, you know? And, and, um, and I get it. I was just like, what? else do I do? Pay out of pocket or go somewhere else? But going somewhere else is really hard too. You know, you call 10 numbers and they're like, nope. Not accepting new patients. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so you're like, okay, I'll go to Soham. <laughs> just go to Soham. That's fine. I'll just do that, you know? And, and so, like I said, there's a lot of medical stressors in the sense of like logistics here that sometimes people will spend like 20 minutes telling me about it. And I'm like, I know, I know, right? What else can we do about it though? Right. And I don't I don't know what we can do about it because there's not enough doctors, there's not enough nurses, there's not enough therapists. And that's and and, you know, the not enough is is also I feel like at times are also in the big city, you know, depending on what we're looking for. Like, like, I think I told you at the beginning of this, I'm like, I'm really surprised I have a couple people that I see telehealth wise um, in terms of taking a, a few hours out of what could be given back to this community, I give it to people in larger cities. And I'm like, this is, this is really interesting that you're go, from going from a bigger city looking, you know, in a remote place for a therapist, you know, because they're like, yeah, because you have some of these things that I'm looking for. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, but there's also a lot of therapists out there that, you know, that I do very similar modalities to them that I'm like, what, there's this person... But then sometimes people are like, no, we're looking for like um, an Asian American person. I'm looking for a first generation, um, you know, a child of immigrants, you know. And so they're looking for that that piece of relating at that point, which I'm like, oh, OK, I could I could see that, you know. And, and so I'm like, oh, I might actually be one of the few. I think, in fact, I might be the only one in terms of like Humboldt County and first generation um, uh, children of immigrants, you know, because there's a huge college population up here. And I was like, I need to start doing that. I need to start going back, you know, and not only strictly sticking with the population I'm completely comfortable with. Like, I'm very comfortable with people who have gone through my own own experiences, too. 
So, so that's well, and you're very easy to talk to, which I think is a very important thing when you're when you're looking for a therapist. Is do I feel comfortable talking with this person? Can I go to these places with them that I might might be challenging for me? And I think you you have that. I think it's, you're easy to talk to, and I can see people saying, "Well, I want you because." I know I can talk to you. I'm yeah. not going to be freaked out. We can have these difficult discussions. We can go to these challenging places and it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, and, and I do think that, you know, maybe it's because I use a lot of humor appropriately. Probably sometimes, helps. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> inappropriately. And, but people appreciate it. Right. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at this, the absurdity of things. Right. And people are like, yeah, and there's really nothing we could do but laugh. And so sometimes it's like, there is a lot of laughing that goes on. You know, when I used to work um, at a clinic here, there, in fact, I just ran into this person yesterday, my coworker who worked outside of the office of my office was like, why is it always so loud in there? What's going on? I'm like, yeah, there's just a lot of laughing going on because that's sometimes that's all we can do. Right. And then we kind of get out of it. And then next there could be like crying going on. And I'm like, yeah, we're feeling all of our range of emotions here. Right. We're going we're we're going through it all. Not all of them, but we're going through quite a few of them, you know. And once again, it's just like you're just being human. That's it. It's just a reminder. Be like, we can do hard things. That's it. And we can do it with that, you know, self-compassion piece, too. Right. Because, you know, I've talked about a lot of other modalities, but there's a really big one that I use, too. And it's not even a modality. It's more like skills based. It's self-compassion. Um, it's It's been. It's been around for about 25 years or so, I think, maybe 25, 30 years, um, you know, started in Berkeley with a woman named Kristen Neff, who now teaches at the University of Texas. And then her and the co- her co-founder, Chris Germer, they do a lot of these trainings on self-compassion of like how to be kind to self. And that whole idea of being kind to self would then radiate more compassion to our community and you know our neighbors, whatever it may be. And so there's a lot of like skills building with self-compassion too. And that's a difficult one to, to get that's through. A lifelong challenge. Yeah. Working through that and just right. being more compassionate towards yourself. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah, that kindness to self, that, which then works through shame, right? Because there's a training that they have called um, the antidote to shame is self-compassion, which I'm like, yeah, it, kind of, it totally is. You know, you are correct, you know, and, and I've been trying to get on, you know, get into that training as well, but I just have no time. I'm like completely booked Swamped. up with train, yeah. Until like the spring, you know. And I think that's another thing that clients do appreciate. They're like, you know, you're always telling me about these new things you're you're trying to learn, right? And once again, it's like you don't have all the answers. I'm like, yeah, because I don't, I don't have any answers at all, right? But but what it is, it's like you're willing to do the work to guide people. So it's not just I as the client need to do the work, but you know, as the therapist, you're willing to do the work that that can guide us. And I'm like, that's really, like, I appreciate that, you know? I just thought I was over here, like, building up my knowledge base, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, and spending a bunch of money. But it's more than that, right? To hear people give that appreciation, to hear them ask me, like, what are you learning about now? You know, what books are you reading now is, is really great, because people are trying to work through it. They're like, what, are you, what do you know that I don't know that, that I can learn, you know? And, and so I'm always reading. Um, I'm always reading some kind of behavioral health book, you know, um, and, and so people get very interested and they're like, okay. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, I don't have that as a hard copy book. Cause I, you know, cause I'm kind of, I don't want to spend the money on it. And so I use Libby, right. And I go down to San Francisco and I'm like, I must get a library card from you. 
and you have to show up in person when you live out of the county. But I, I recently got one from Sacramento. So I'm like, OK, that's good enough. I'm waiting to go down to L.A. to get the next one to be like and then like all the books on behavioral health I can have, you know, so it's and so it is a lot of work for the client and then for the therapist. But I think it's really good work because it's, you know, you're building this trusting relationship where people can come in and once again, display all the emotions and then you can kind of go through the emotions with them as well, whether you want to like sit there and analyze it and break it down and talk about dysregulation, regulation, whatever it may be. So it's all very like present and real, but also we can take you back into history if we need to, to understand, right? Because we have a lot of, um, there's a lot of, you know, um, I also see a lot of anger and resentment with parents, right? Of course, like, oh, my parents, I know, right? And then you're like, hold on, time out again. Let's ask what happened to them. It doesn't excuse their behaviors whatsoever, in terms of what happened to us because of someone else's behaviors or whatever survival situation was going on, right? It, once again, does not excuse anyone's behaviors, but what it is is it gives us a better understanding of what they had to go through to get us to where we're at, you know? And then we're having to go through whatever it is to then carry on this next generation, right? Well, Shin, I think we can end it there. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate <laughs> yeah, you coming thanks. on and talking <laughs> with me. Do you want to plug? Uh, your stuff where people can find you where they can reach out if they want more information anything like that um yeah so you can either find me on the Encamp website w what is that what is the website like i can put it in the description okay. which is, that's actually how i found you we were talking about that too that was the website that right. you came across my radar on or just real quickly i could put my phone number out there my work number it's textable even though my my uh, voicemail greeting is a little rude right now. I'm this does go out. Is that like a business line? I don't know. It if is wanna... a business Okay, line. I was going to yeah, say. Yeah. I don't know if you want to put out your <laughs> no, personal no. line. No, no, no. It's a business line. So people can text me on this line. I'm a lot more responsive, but it's um, area code 707-740-1305. It's on the NCAMP site, but that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. And then I think through NCAMP, you can email me as well. But that's the, the quick response. Okay. Well, yeah. really, this was great. Good. We'll have to do this again. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you.